Hello, you're listening to After the Homily with Father Daniel Scheidt. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Stroud. Today we're talking about pilgrimage. What is pilgrimage? What's so unique about it? What is it about a pilgrimage that offers the opportunity for such tremendous spiritual growth? What's the difference between just tourism and actual pilgrimage? As evidenced by the title, today we're specifically going to talk about pilgrimage to Rome. Now, Father Dan's recently visited Rome, as he has many times, and he's going to talk with us about what's unique about pilgrimage to Rome. He's going to give some insight into what he believes are the top things to see while on pilgrimage to Rome. And then I think even more interestingly, he's going to shed some light on what he thinks are the three most important pilgrimage that every Catholic should make at some point in their lives. So stay tuned and listen to Father Dan talk about all roads leading to Rome and religious pilgrimage. So, Father Dan, thank you for joining us again. Listeners probably know that you've just returned from some time on the road that led to Rome, as all roads do, (laughs) as given by the title and this episode. So maybe we could begin by just filling listeners in on why this is not your first trip to Rome. Why this time? What was this trip about? It just so happens that our Bishop Rhodes sends a number of young men who are studying for the priesthood to do that at the North American College in Rome. And it goes back to the 19th century practice of bishops from the United States sending certain men to be formed in Rome so that there would be a particular love of the Holy Father in particular, but the universal church in general. And just as the the Roman Empire of old brought people from all over the, the Mediterranean to that city center. So too, in its Catholic form, Rome draws pilgrims to the tombs of Peter and Paul every day. I was there this past time for the ordination to the diaconate of two men from our diocese, Sam Anderson from our parish at St. Vincent's, and Deacon Zane Langenbrunner from the other side of our diocese, Mishawaka. Now, I'm sure people are wondering, non-clergy people, so if you're a seminarian, is it okay to aspire to be one of those selected to go to Rome? And how, among all of the amazing young men in the seminary, how would Bishop Rhodes decide that Sam, for instance, should be educated there versus, you know, somewhere else? Generally speaking, the bishop looks at what, a young man's aptitudes and interests would be. So some of it depends on, on academic excellence and nobody is actually required to go Hmm. to Rome. And I would suspect that if someone asked to study in Rome, that would be considered. Hmm. So some guys have been asked and have just thought that their education would be better served by studying in the United States. And Hmm. so there's a, there's a certain amount of freedom in it. I'm of the view that it it's particularly challenging. It's not the easiest place. People tend to romanticize <laughs> studying in the Eternal City, but it's a foreign country right. with all of the extra work 
in day-to-day living that goes with that. Now, it is called the American University. So tell me, surely the classes are in English. So the North American College is the seminary where the young men live. Mm -hmm. And they have a few courses there in pastoral work, but they actually attend Roman universities. Wow. Run for the most part, by different religious orders. So the Gregorian University is run by the Jesuits. The Angelicum is run by the Dominicans. Holy Cross is run by Opus Dei. And so the the men will study at one of those Roman faculties and the classes may be in Italian or they may be in English or a mix. That's intimidating. So you better have a proclivity for language. Correct. (laughs) Correct. So you you went this trip for the ordination. I'm sure listeners would love to know something about, maybe they've had the privilege of going to an ordination here at the cathedral, maybe not, but what's what's it like to see an ordination at St. Peter's? Well, it's interesting you asked the question about whether or not people have ever been to an ordination. Mm. It's one thing to have it in St. Peter's, just feet away from the tomb of the apostle himself, And St. Peter's Basilica is the largest church in the world. It's a building that feels like one is outside when when one walks into it. So it feels like the outdoors indoors. And so there's a certain, certain grandeur that is informed by the central mysteries of our faith. So the, the saints, who are in the sculptures all around the basilica are are cheering us on but but the deeper question is when one goes to an ordination for example at our own cathedral let's say the cathedral of the immaculate conception in fort wayne one is making a pilgrimage and every catholic family should aspire at some point to attend at least one ordination, whether it's to the diaconate or to the, the priesthood. That should just be part of everyone's Catholic life. Yeah, it's interesting. I've, I've had the chance to go and my family's had the chance to go. And listening to you say that, I was thinking there's a piece of it that's like going to a wedding of, of, of a relative. You know, you're, you're going out of respect for the participants, but there's more. And, and I think that's what you're referencing, this idea of pilgrimage. It's, you're, you're going to be transformed and changed by just having attended this event. Yes. And the fact that the very roots of Christianity in Judaism teach us that the people of God have always gone on pilgrimage. And in fact, the Lord has actually required it. It's it's part of our genetics. So for any faithful Jew, the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover, for example, was was a spiritual necessity. And you just ask the question, well, why why would the Lord require that? And at a at a basic level, it's to fulfill a need that we have to see that we belong to a family larger than our own, obviously larger than our natural family, but but even larger than, than our local community. So in terms of our Catholic faith, 
every parish is its own familial ecosystem. <laughs> but, but actually realizing that we're connected to something larger. In fact, in the teaching of the church, what's called the local church is not the parish, but the diocese. And so the cathedral, which is known as the mother church of all the churches in the diocese, the cathedral should really be a place that, that we should call home. So if somebody asked me, well, where should I go on pilgrimage? I, I would actually give as the first suggestion, not getting a plane ticket to Rome <laughs> or Jerusalem, but actually visit our cathedral, the place where we have the, the center around the bishop, the successor of the apostles, the center of, of our life as a portion of the church. And even the word diocese comes from Roman law. It goes back to the empire. So the Roman mm. empire was divided by the emperors into dioceses, mm. literally just geographical territories over which a person would have a supervisory role of care. And so when the empire fell, the church retained that category, those those portionings out of land and and assigned them to bishops to fulfill Christ's commission, go teach all nations. So in a sense, when we make a pilgrimage, we're participating in that that missionary sending that Christ gave as the command to his first followers. We're, we're renewing our, our own character as missionaries. So wherever we start, whatever we call our home, Jesus wants us to take the gifts of that and bring those to another place. Mm. So really, making a pilgrimage is actually training for being a missionary. And, and the church is always seeking to expand, just like every living organism is always seeking to pass on its life, to send the roots deeper and the, the branches farther and to, to launch the, the seeds of the fruit <laughs> as, as far as they can go. You know, listening to you describe that, I, I'm a convert, and I re- the first time I visited our cathedral was in part of the you know, the RCIA process, the Chrism Mass and some other things. And I just remembered walking into the cathedral for the first time, thinking, first of all, wow, this is big. If you're a convert, it probably doesn't look like any church that you've ever seen. It's it's different. It's beautiful. It's, 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 it's all sorts of things. But there was this sense of I'm becoming part of something that's much bigger. And there's there's pieces that aren't even here that are represented by here. Yes. And as a convert, that was an amazing feeling. I don't think our Protestant brothers and sisters get to experience that. Yes. It is very, very localized in, in their world, whereas ours is very universal, you might say. Right. 
You mentioned the chrism mass. I went years of my life not knowing that all of the oils that are used in the sacramental life of the church, the oils that are used at, at baptism and confirmation, at ordinations and for the consecration of churches, the oils for the anointing of the sick, are blessed at a single liturgy in the cathedral by the bishop. And we're invited to be part of that. And in a sense, those extra acts of faith beyond just our Sunday obligation or holy days of obligation, the, the setting out in, in great freedom to go to the cathedral, whether it's to the chrism mass or to ordinations, that, that setting out is, is really meant to expand our vision of what the Lord is doing beyond us and also to, to train us to, to bring that goodness farther than, than we would normally think. So we've, we've rather made the case for pilgrimage is important, sort of built in our DNA, and a pilgrimage could be and should be a trip to your local cathedral uh, as a start. Your pilgrimage went much further. It went to Rome. And it seems to me it's impossible to say, particularly to a fellow Catholic, I'm going to Rome, I've just returned from Rome, without sort of getting the same look on their face, there's this feeling of, wow, you, so you saw it, you were there. Would we go so far as to say, you know, Rome and a pilgrimage to Rome is on the list of, if at all possible, a Catholic should go there? Yes. So I'm, I'm persuaded that if possible, every Catholic over the course of a lifetime— <laughs> should make three pilgrimages in addition to the pilgrimage to the cathedral. That's actually, I think, a necessity. But the three others that I would recommend, first, I think every Catholic in our country should go to the March for Life mm. in Washington, D.C. The National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception is there. It was spearheaded in its, its vision and fundraising by a bishop of Fort Wayne, Bishop John Francis Knoll. And it's the largest church in North America. And it's not only gorgeous, but I think the March for Life is the one event for Catholics in the United States on an annual basis where we can see how large the Catholic Church is, how, how, how diverse, how young, how, how amazing it is across the generations. So I was deeply moved when I went as a, a seminarian. I think I went 12 years in a row before I became pastor and had to delegate that to <laughs> my parochial vicars. The second pilgrimage which I think should be made a little bit later in life. So I'd recommend the March for Life, especially for high school kids, maybe college age, young adults, certainly young families. Mm. There's also the dimension of just a lesson in civics, mm. bearing public witness by going to our nation's capital. But maybe in middle age, I think it would be a worthwhile thing to aspire to make a Roman pilgrimage. Not only 
can one spend some years saving up for that? But following in the footsteps of the pilgrimage that Christians have made from the beginning. So we still have in the, in the catacombs, the, the underground burial chambers, the, the inscriptions of the earliest Christians saying that they were, they were here at the tomb of Peter. They were here at the tomb of Paul. And what I find so deeply moving about Rome is it's a living archaeological dig you can have access to the history of the church in all of its layers. Even the Jewish community in Rome has, has been there for centuries before the birth of Christ. The yeah. Romans respected the, the Jewish community there for many years because of the antiquity of their religion. Obviously, when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, the Jews fell on very hard times in, in Rome. That tradition of Rome just being a, a living archaeological site where one can have access to our faith throughout the centuries. I, this past time when I went, it, it dawned on me that it's less an archaeological dig than like a multidimensional exploration of the human body where you can actually trace how the body has grown over the years through the layers. And it, it's not like the past ones are dead. They're, they're just incorporated in a living way into the new ones. So middle age, I'd recommend the Roman pilgrimage. And then finally in, in one's, more mature years, I would recommend the the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Uh -huh. And even though its its monuments have been sacked any number of times, uh, any any number of obvious concerns about safety would prevent uh, present themselves. I've I've been to the Holy Land once, and I found it to be remarkably safe. If you notice, you never read news stories about Jews, Muslims, or Christians, pilgrims ever being harassed <laughs> because everybody has a vested interest in keeping the flow of pilgrims and mm. what that brings to the Holy Land going. But, but to be able to see the very concrete specificity of the places where God chose to become flesh is, um, is life-changing. Now, of course, unlike Muslims, pilgrimages to, whether it's Washington, D.C. or Rome or Jerusalem, are not required. They're left to our, our freedom, precisely because Christ is sacramentally present wherever the church is planted. So, we actually can go on pilgrimage to our parish church, to a perpetual adoration chapel like the Oratory of St. Mary Magdalene, and encounter the living God there. And there's an intimacy with that that is beyond some type of external requirement to you know, go halfway around the world as a necessity. I'll admit, when I returned from Rome— I remember going to Mass the first time at home after coming back from Rome. 
and Mass at home felt different. It felt more holy. Because I think I had just been, my senses had been inundated in Rome, the holiest of places, and so my eyes were different. I looked for things differently. I, I, I remember noticing the relics as I walked in. I'd never paid attention to that before. So, so yeah, it wasn't, it doesn't in any way diminish our local home experience. I think it, it augmented it. Yes. And in certain of the prayers of the Mass, for example, what's called the Roman Canon, otherwise known as the First Eucharistic Prayer, all of those different saints that, <laughs> that are mentioned, so many of them are buried in Rome. And so just as you walk around that city, you can visit the place where St. Agnes is buried, St. Clement is buried, St. Lawrence is buried, Peter and Marcellinus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Cecilia, Anastasia, I'm not going to go through all of them, <laughs> but to have visited the places where those saints lived and died for Christ, where their tombs remain visited and venerated, and then to come home and, and be part of the church's universal prayer, it, it does add a dimensionality to our Catholic faith. Let me just give you one uh, simple example. After Deacon Samuel Anderson's ordination, the next day we had his first preached mass and he asked me to be the priest presider and he was the deacon who proclaimed the gospel and, and preached on it. And it happened to be the feast of St. Jerome. And it also just happened that the church he chose, Our Lady of Montserrat, was in the exact neighborhood where Jerome himself lived. Hmm. So all of us pilgrims who walked down that little street into that particular church were walking on the street where Jerome himself lived in Rome. And just the specificity of that it, it really does focus the mind that this isn't a fictional tale. It's not just a, mm. a happy story. It's, it's fact. And the fact has flesh and blood. And the fact is risen from the dead. And the fact every day is forming this family that's meant to be as large as the human race. Wow. You know, I'm uh, ignorant to if there is theology or anything in the catechesis to support it, but do you, do you think it's fair to say, I like the expression, God loves us too much to leave us where we are, but is it fair to say that we do have an obligation to get better at this thing called being a Christian? We're not supposed to just sit still. We should get better. We should get holier. And pilgrimage, local, regional, international, will make us better. Right. Sometimes we we tend to think of pilgrimage today with all of our creature comforts as a type of spiritual tourism. So, you know, well, I could go, I could go to Florida for winter to get a suntan, or I could go to this particular religious site and and get some some spiritual consolation. But I I actually think that that misses the central point. The, the point of pilgrimage 
is an expression of allowing the Lord to take us out of our comfort zone, what's predictable, what's controllable, and actually allow ourselves to be sent. So in in the ancient world, pilgrimage was not primarily spiritual tourism. It it was considered a penitential act because it was really difficult. And in fact, often life-threatening because the the pilgrim routes had all sorts of dangers from from being robbed or or kidnapped or, or in the case of the Holy Land, you know, sold into slavery. So to recover that fundamental insight that the Christian life is one of being sent by the Lord to new places. I mean, what, what does Jesus do once he forms the first apostles and calls them? He, he sends them. He says, go to these new towns and don't take too much with you. And you're going to have to rely on people you haven't met yet and stay there for a while. Don't just move around all the time. Form friendships there. And then, oh, by the way, come back and share what you've received and, and then we'll do it again. <laughs> so that, that is the genetics of the pilgrimage. So the apostles and the holy women, they weren't tourists going from town to town collecting new experiences. They were, they were actually entrusted by Christ to these new people so that new friendships could be formed So by the time St. Paul comes along, he's actually journeying to these different cities throughout the Roman world, just going on these commercial trade routes, forming these networks of friendship and then connecting them. So his letters Mm. are essentially the letters of a pilgrim. So he, he visits the church in Ephesus, the church in Corinth, the church in Colossae, and yes, the church in Rome the experiences that he has in those places, he shares with other places. So in a sense, the, the homecoming of the pilgrimage is, is really fulfilling the obligation to share the graces that one has received in the faraway place with the people at home. So it, you know, the goal of the pilgrimage isn't just to go to all these places. It's, it's actually also to come back and to share the fruits of, of what one has received. Wow. Well, with a Roman focus, let's say our listeners have decided we're going to Rome, uh, we're ready, and we make that, that pilgrimage to Rome. And no one has enough time in Rome. Uh, having been there myself, however long you stay will not be sufficient. But if there are three things on the punch card for Catholics on pilgrimage to Rome, we have the three pilgrimages that we need to make. Now on the Roman yes. pilgrimage, what are the three must-sees in Rome? So the first thing I would recommend if you're going to go to Rome is, if you're from our diocese, Fort Wayne, South Bend, contact the chancery to get connected with our seminarians in Rome so that they can hook you up with for example, a tour of St. Peter's Basilica. Mm. So obviously 
at the heart of the pilgrimage going to Rome is visiting the tombs of the apostles of Peter at St. Peter's Basilica, St. Paul at St. Paul's outside the walls, the two other most important churches, St. Mary Major, the oldest church in the Christian West dedicated to the Blessed Virgin Mary, and then St. John Lateran, which is traditionally known as the Pope's Church, even before St. Peter's was. St. John Lateran is known as the, the mother and head of all the churches of the, the Christian world. All of those churches go back in their roots to the time of the Emperor Constantine, fourth century, when the emperor converts to Christianity. So I would say there are the churches. And with St. Peter's Basilica, you can also sign up ahead of time to visit the excavations under the the basilica. It's mm. called the Scavi Tour, S-C-A-V-I. So that's the first thing I'd recommend. Um, get in touch with our seminarians, or if you're from another diocese, phone the chancery. They'll hook you mm. up with somebody from the North American College to get you in that. The second thing that I, I think everyone should do is it's a, it's a general bit of advice, but to actually get up before sunrise and walk the streets of the historical center before the tour buses, <laughs> before everything. And, and to visit the other churches of Rome when they open and they typically open around seven in the morning and you can have them all to yourself. So if you love St. Ignatius Loyola, you can visit the Jesu church at seven in the morning and, and, and worship the Lord at mass before Ignatius's tomb or St. Philip Neri at the Chiesa Nuova. But Rome by morning is a whole different experience of, of intimacy. The third recommendation, it, it can sound trite, but it's actually really important, is I think everyone should visit the Pantheon, uh -huh. specifically for Sunday Mass. Hmm. And it's at 1030 <laughs> on Sundays. And in English, that, English Mass at 10.30. No, it's in Italian, <laughs> but they've arranged for some English homilies. No. So a few weeks ago, I got to be the one who proclaimed the gospel in Italian, and I got to preach in English. <laughs> but that, that pagan temple, which was built before the incarnation of Christ, that pagan temple has been used uninterruptedly as a Christian a place of worship as a church since the year 609. They brought all these cartloads from the catacombs of, of the bones, the martyrs, mm -hmm. other people who died for Christ. And they reconsecrated the Pantheon as the church of uh, Santa Maria ad Martires, St. Mary uh, and the martyrs. And what I love about that place is that it's the integration of pre-Christian Rome with really the, the entire history of the church. And the dome is open at the top. There's an oculus open to the sky. And if you go on Pentecost, the firefighters of Rome toss rose petals down onto the, the congregation when 
the scriptures of Pentecost are proclaimed about the descent of the Holy Spirit in the form of tongues of fire. If you go in the Pantheon, when it's raining, there's a, there's a whole column of, of rain coming through that, that central oculus mm-hmm. into the drain at the center of the, of the church, or in the rare occasions when it snows. So it's, it's just gorgeous. But, but to be in a place that was once upon a time dedicated to all the gods and to pray there to the one true God, the living God, and, and to call on him, as Christ says, as our Father. So to pray the Lord's Prayer at the Pantheon, surrounded by all the saints, is um, it's like nothing else. Wow. You know, focusing a little on St. Peter's, I can remember conversations with some of my non-Catholic friends who had visited St. Peter's. And their description and my description had some similarities, but were very different. I mean, they talked of the beauty, they talked of the bigness, but you know, American football stadiums are big. Right. Uh, but what is it about St. Peter's that when you walk in, you suddenly feel transformed? I mean, sure, it's big, but yes, it's hard to describe. Yeah. Really, at every moment throughout the day, if you just stood inside the main doors of the Basilica and just watched... The, the expression on people's face <laughs> when they see it for the first time. It's just slack-jawed wonder. It, it is like no other place on earth. But it does require a certain intelligence of faith to see the interior of it. For example, if you were to get a drone and fly over St. Peter's Square or just do a Google image search of St. Peter's Square, you would see that actually the square in front of the church is in the shape of a keyhole. Mm. So Bernini, the architect who designed St. Peter's Square, he designed the whole piazza in front to be in the shape of a keyhole. Why? Well, because Peter was given the keys to the kingdom of heaven and what is the key to the kingdom of heaven but realizing that Christ has founded his one holy Catholic and apostolic church to be his family, formed of his flesh and blood. Now, a portion of St. Peter's Square, if you look at it, is, is also oval. So the, you might say the upper part of the, the keyhole shape is that oval part. And Bernini deliberately designed it to evoke the shape of the Colosseum. So St. Peter's Square is, is designed to evoke the place of martyrdom because it was on the Vatican Hill that Nero uh, uh, martyred many, many people, including, tradition has it, Peter himself. But instead of the first Colosseum in which the spectators are pagans cheering the death of Christians— under the thumb of the earthly emperor. What Bernini has done is he's put us in the arena, cheered on by the saints. So there are sculptures of all the saints who've won the crown of martyrdom that surround everybody who comes to St. Peter's Square. And it, they're cheering us on to, <laughs> to meet the Lord and, and to bear witness to his goodness in our time. Whatever the cost. And then 
the final aspect of, of St. Peter's Square that's particularly beautiful is when you enter it, the two arms of the colonnade have the feel of, of being embraced by one's mother. So it's, it's Holy Mother Church welcoming the, the whole family home. And I know that it's possible for people, you know, depending on their, their background and, and spiritual disposition, to look at all of that and say, couldn't all the money spent on that uh, sure. be, have been spent on the poor? Mm. And it's a fascinating question that I've, I've spent decades thinking about. And it, it amazes me that in the gospel, that question is put on the lips of Judas, you know, of all people. <laughs> yeah. So the, you know, the extravagant gift given by the, the sinful woman, she breaks open the alabaster jar and pours its contents out on, on Christ. And, and Judas asks the question, couldn't that have better been spent on the poor? And Jesus responds, well, the poor you'll always have with you. Me, you won't always have with mm. you. What she's done uh, is a good thing. And wherever the gospel is told, what she's done will be told in memory of her. And so the, the wisdom that I've, I've only come to gradually on this particular point is that there was never an opposition Never, uh, between the the building project and the poor, because from the beginning, the building project is employing innumerable people uh, at at every level, not just the the stonemasons, sure. and but but also just the people who make the food and 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 the building project itself is dedicated to charity. It's, it's dedicated to generosity. The whole thing is built with generosity for generosity. And, and even if you were Ebenezer Scrooge and you didn't believe in God and didn't really think much of, of other people, even if you were just doing the, the crassest of number crunching financial calculations, I just show me another building project on the planet, which has generated more revenue, benefiting more people, including the destitute, than the building of a church like St. Peter's in Rome. And I, I have to tell you a, a story from my own experience. When, when I first lived in Rome as a student, I had no money. I, the whole time I was there, I, I couldn't go to a restaurant even a single time because I couldn't afford anything on the menu. <laughs> I subsisted on the cheapest carbs. I, I calculated from day to day the money that I had, you know, but somehow I always had enough money to buy one gelato a day <laughs> to subsist on. But one of my favorite places to pray was the Jesu Church, which is the central Jesuit church in Rome where St. Ignatius is buried. And there was a homeless man who was outside the church begging and that was his spot. And as the days and weeks and months passed, I, I wouldn't just, you know, give him a few coins, but I'd, I'd actually just engage him in conf conversation. And I'd, I'd sit down and, and we'd actually talk just on a regular basis. And 
he was my gatekeeper in a certain sense to the interior life of of what it is to be a beggar in Rome. And, you know, he had chemical dependency. He was an alcoholic, a drug addict, et cetera. But, but he would point to all the different places around that church and all the people who took care of him. He said, you know, like, well, I go to this place and they give me breakfast and yeah. here I get some lunch. And the neat thing about the church was that it was the one place that he could go in the summer that was naturally air conditioned. So the church was his shade in the summer. And in the winter, that church was the warmest place that he could go to get off the streets. And so the, the church became his warm place in, in the winter. And there developed this whole little network of people in the neighborhood anchored by that church building who watched out for this guy. And, and I, I think on Judgment Day, we're going to find that there's an army of people who were poor, who were beggars, who will be initiating us into thankful praise for our generosity in supporting those houses of God. And we're not even talking about the poverty that each of us has, our need for, for spiritual beauty, a place that really nourishes our soul beyond any commercial purpose. So when I think of you know, our own parish of St. Vincent's and the Oratory of St. Mary Magdalene as a place of pilgrimage, so we have people coming to our parish, to that place of prayer from California from Pennsylvania, Vermont, and they come to it just to rest in what is spiritually beautiful. And there's something about feasting on divine beauty that expands our heart and naturally makes us more generous, more charitable. So, as I said at the beginning of this long exposition, there, it's a false dichotomy mm. between giving to the poor and building beautiful churches. They're actually meant to, to go together, and the existence of one naturally leads, I would propose, to the, the helping of the other. You know, you, you mentioned beauty, and I think anybody that walks into St. Peter's, that's a word they're going to use. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's divinely beautiful. You and I recently sat together at a dinner where uh, Charles Shepard, the, the administrator of the Fort Wayne Art Museum, talked a little bit about beauty. And, you know, what is it, as we think about walking into St. Peter's, what is it about beauty that captures our mind and sort of directs us, you know, to God? Why does beauty do that? Well, beauty is the, it's the splendor of the truth of the good. The good is beautiful. The good is true. And in our culture, which is dominated by so many words, by perhaps an overemphasis on argument, debate, there's something about beauty that disarms us. The argument isn't made with 
with words that are arguing us down, but actually words that are the words of God. So when you go into a church and they're the words of the gospel, the words of the Old or New Testament, that vocabulary is a much gentler one than just being bombarded with all sorts of bad news. I would also say because we're so saturated with images that are designed to to sell us something or to enslave us in some way, there's something about the beauty of a church that we can just rest in that that's non-utilitarian. It, it's not out to get us to do anything. It's it's almost like a children's puzzle where you ask, wow, what's this? What's that supposed to remind me of? Whether it's a, a saint in a stained glass window, who is that? Why is that person holding what they're holding? Or just a way that the crucifix is designed. Wow, I've never seen the crucifix as... Is it the tree of life? There's something that captures the the elemental wonder of childhood where the whole world is is new for us. It it hasn't yet been trampled by <laughs> our marketing our adult yeah, expectations <laughs> and exploitation of it. Yeah. And it, there are so many things of beauty there. And I know nothing about art. I wish I knew much more about it. But I can remember being taken in by altarpieces there, thinking this is just one of thousands, and I just happen to pause here. And it causes you to maybe quieten a little bit and just stare at it without any, you know, artistic education yes. at all. Well, it's St. Peter's. So, for example, one walks in the door and immediately to the right is Michelangelo's Pieta mm. of Mary holding the, the body of her son. So there you have one of the most famous pieces of art ever made by human hands. And there it is. And so, you know, that's its own amazing thing. And then you realize standing in the back of St. Peter's. So if you look at the little tour book that, oh, this, this enormous round piece of stone that you're standing on, stone is called porphyry is the exact stone on which the Emperor Charlemagne was crowned Holy Roman Emperor in the year 800 at the Christmas Mass in St. Peter's. And so you, you just realize, so at that moment, I am literally standing on history. So the history of the world has passed by way of this place. But then, you know, wait, there's more. The... <laughs> The thing that blows me away more than anything when I go into St. Peter's is in one of the chapels near the, the Pieta is the altar in which Pope John Paul II is buried. Yeah. And, you know, here's, here's a man, a shepherd, the Pope, that I knew since he was elected in 1978. You know, I, I heard about him. I would always see him on TV. I got to meet him in person a few times, I've read his works. In a sense, Pope John Paul and we 
have lived the drama of decades of, you know, the modern era. And there he is incorporated into the architecture of the church. So this man who helped us pray to Christ is, is now one of the living stones in the temple of God. And, and I just think to myself, my life is meant to be another of the living stones that Christ is fitting into his temple. So in a, in a, in a very mysterious way, when I go on pilgrimage to Rome, it's not just looking backward. It, it's actually having the most vivid sense that I can think of, of the last judgment of, of the question Lord, what do you want me to do with the rest of my life to bear witness to your goodness? What are your plans for me to take what you've given me and bring it home and share it more generously? How is the the art project that is my life going to be completed? Um, so if if Christ is the master and he is, well, in a sense, he's not just the master as boss. He's like the master artist. So we speak of, you know, the great masters like Michelangelo. But if that's true, that means that we're his masterpiece. So the, the purpose of the Christian life is to be fashioned into his masterpieces. And those aren't meant to be put in a museum as God's handiwork. We're alive and, and, and we're traveling and it could be traveling to our neighbor's home. It could be traveling to the hospital to visit a sick friend. It could be traveling to our, to our church to invite other people to a parish festival. Like Those are the, the daily pilgrimages, the daily works of art that, that form a Christian life. Well, that seems like a great place to probably end this episode's conversation. I think, I know you've convinced me that pilgrimage is a good thing and you've given us some great ideas, everything from our own cathedral to the cathedral of St. Peter's. So thanks for spending this time with us. Thank you, Chris. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation of After the Homily as much as I have. I hope you'll plan to join us regularly, and I hope you'll tell all your friends to join us as well. Are there topics you'd like to hear from Father Dan about? Do you have a question that you'd like answered? If so, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at church at saintv.org. That's S-A-I-N-T-V dot O-R-G. And type After the Homily in the subject, Or you can text me directly at 260-450-8878. And please text or start the message with After the Homily. Well, thanks again for listening to After the Homily with Father Daniel Scheidt.